and repeated points of failure, which is really concerning, and some of which relate to kind of cultural attitudes, frankly, around issues like damp and mould. Some attitudes towards some members of society, some, some of their residents, which are frankly uh, disgusting attitudes, which, which shouldn't really exist in a 21st century social housing sector. That's Richard Blakeway speaking to Sky News this week. He is the housing ombudsman, talking about a report into Rochdale borough-wide housing. It's damning describing it as dismissive, inappropriate and unsympathetic after a young boy died from exposure to mould. This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in the mill's newsroom today... The editor, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hey, how's it going? Really well, sir. Yes, thank you very much. Um, we're going to take a, a dive into that damning report shortly into Rochdale borough-wide housing. We'll also find out why The Guardian has apologised for um, a, a bit of its history and some of its founding financing uh, shortly. Firstly, there was a cracking read in the, in the mill that I caught this week, Yoshi, about the about one of my favourite subjects, which is the Manc accent or the Northern accent and how the dialect and stuff is changing. Why, why is Manchester's accents in certain parts changing, Yoshi? Yeah, so according to this, as you can tell, I don't have a, a North Manc <laughs> or South Manc accent. The expert on this. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not an expert. But there was this study by a linguist at the University of Manchester that confirmed what I think a lot of people sort of have observed, which is that in the south of Manchester, you have you've lost some of this sort of distinctive um, sounds that you get with the North Mancunian accent, and the argument made in the research or suggested in the research was that the fact that outsiders, many more people who've moved from London from the south like me, have come into South Manchester, means in the south and the centre of the city, you now have. Um, you, you've it's almost got a sort of weakened or watered down Mancunian accent, um, and 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 I guess I don't know. Would your your accent wouldn't even be considered North Manchester? I don't think it'd be considered more sort of Lancashire. Is that right? Yeah. Well, mine's my, mine's a bit of a mess to tell you the truth because I, I born and bred in Bolton, had a very strong Bolton accent until I met my ex-girlfriend, my now ex-girlfriend, who was from Berkshire, who is one of those people who moved to Manchester mm. and having spent a lot of time with her. Um, and I guess on the radio a little bit as well. I've talked about this a bit before. My, my accent's really softened. I mean, I sound nothing like I used to sound, right? And I, I think I'm quite, I think I'm probably a little bit, I'm definitely Northern, but I think I'm hard to place. Um, sometimes I have a bit of a Yorkshire twang even to my accent for some mysterious reason. Um, mm. So I think I think I am probably... A, a case study, Yoshi, of how the northern accent has changed because of mine's quite direct, having lived with somebody who was southern. But my, my accent's changed because of an infiltration of people coming from the south. I think. Okay, so, so, so my girlfriend actually asked, and she's Romanian, so she's got no skin in this game whatsoever. She said she was reading the, our Monday briefing where we talked about this North Force distinction, where words like "for" and "war" have a different pronunciation for "for." And war, as in like, you know, oh God, it's going to be really hard to explain. Can you, that, 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 yeah, par that. that, that paragraph, tell us what the difference, what different sounds are being referred to there between four as in the number and four um, as in the F-O-R word and war as in war a coat and war as in like a, a military war. 
Yeah, all right. So for, if you say four, right, you're saying four as in four something. Yeah. War, as in, you know, war. Yeah. Uh, as in combat. Yeah. War as in war something. Yeah. And four as in the number four, right? Yeah. And how all of those actually sound quite similar, don't they? Yeah. Um, if you're if if I was being in my old accent, in my old Boltonian accent, I would mm. have said war for going to war, yeah. war for having worn something, uh, four for the number four, and probably four for for the the word for something. Okay. So there would have been a much clearer distinction between those four right. <laughs> four things. Right. If that makes okay. sense. Whereas I am, I think I'm a perfect a perfect example of somebody who has my my accent has been softened mm. yeah. and diluted, and now they all sound kind of similar. But it, it kind of makes intuitive sense that in the north of Greater Manchester, in um, areas where there are fewer middle class outsiders coming in, because those neighbourhoods tend to attract, um, in general, fewer people than like your Didsbury, Chalton, Stockport, etc that you would have a purer version of the Mancunian accent than if you are in the south of Greater Manchester and you are surrounded by neighbours who are Londoners or who are German, who are French, or who are speaking the language in different ways, right? So the research says in South Manchester, this this distinction, this four, four distinction, um, they, they sound more the same. And in North Manchester neighbourhoods, I mean, you know, we're talking about the north of the borough of, of Manchester, not Greater Manchester, according to this research. The distinction yeah. remains surprisingly strong, even among um, middle class people. So it, it doesn't come down to a class thing. It comes, to, I think, it comes down to like kind of what's the mix of your neighbourhood, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, I guess it does. And and also, like, it's just it's a story as old as time. This isn't it. Accents have tweaked and changed and bled into other accents, usually because of invasions but often also because of kind of, you know, because of immigration, immigration from the south to the north or mm. migration, should I, migration, should I say. Um, and this this is just, this is going to happen, right? I think it's quite interesting to watch it happening quite rapidly mm. in real time. Yeah. Um, so, but it's not yeah. new. So in, in Andy Spinoza's book, I know I've been talking about his book a lot because um, I'm reading it, obviously, because we've got our event uh, tonight, mm -hmm. if you're listening on Thursday. And in his book, he talks about how this kind of, almost parody of the Manc accent that, that went national in the 90s, you know, because of the music scene and a new order and everything and the Happy Mondays. And he makes the point that that kind of caricature accent wasn't, was actually more of a Salford Docklands kind of twang. Um, you know, Manchester, you know, I'm not going to do it, but you, you, you know, the, the kind of, the, almost <laughs> the piss-take <laughs> accent, yeah. The, the piss-take accent that people would be, um, using around the country to refer to, yeah. you know, to Manx and the Manx music scene was actually more of a sort of Salford thing um, mm. than like a, what what you'd think of as a Manx accent. So yeah, and I think I, do, I think the I think the Manx accent, especially I think naturally with a city that has um, that, that's got lots of that's become a bit of a melting pot. I, I, mm. I, is there? I'm not sure there is a Manx. I think there's a very much a Salford accent. I mean, yeah. I live in Salford, right? And I can sort of feel it everywhere. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there is like a that caricature of a mank accent really properly exists anymore. Yeah. But anyway, um, all very interesting. Speaking of Andy Spinoza, by the way, the uh, the uh, tonight, uh, if you're listening to this on the day of release on Thursday, the Mills Members Club event uh, with Andy is taking place. So we'll um, we might bring you some highlights of that. Yeah, they're going to hook up some um, audio. 
And I think next oh, week we can bring you, I don't know, 10 minutes of my conversation with Andy Spinoza. So instead of talking about Definitely. Andy Spinoza's book, you can hear it <laughs> from, uh, about it from the horse's mouth. Lovely. Okay, excellent. We'll look forward to that on next week's episode and enjoy it if you're heading to that Mill Members Club uh, tonight. Let's get to our main story, finally. Um, uh, And this is really serious. It's been expected, Yoshi, but it is um, damning. Uh, A report that's been published this week by the Housing Ombudsman found that Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, this is the housing association that managed the flat where mould caused the death of two-year-old Arbishak. Uh, it, It treated its residents, and this is really stark language, dismissive inappropriate and unsympathetic is the way that it was described. Yeah, so just to rewind um, to get this story from the beginning, Awab Ishak died in December 2020, so just over two years ago. He had a respiratory condition which was brought on by the mould in his home. And his parents, particularly his father, who speaks better English than his mother, had complained about that mould several times to their landlord, Rochdale Borough Wide Housing. Let's refer to them as RBH. Okay, that's that, that, they're the people who operate the homes. So Faisal Abdullah, which is, 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 is um, Awab's father, he arrived um, from Sudan in 2016, and he was joined by his wife um, soon after. And the, is- the issue with the mould and the flat was first reported in 2017. Right. So we're talking um, three years before um, Awab's death. So initially he was told to paint the mold over um, and there were several other interactions about about this issue. And and there was even a a sort of legal case brought. So after the inquest, the nation came to know about this story after the inquest. I think the Manchester Evening News was the first newspaper to report the inquest. They were certainly the ones that I think sort of got it on the agenda after the inquest. So after this inquest, the family made a very important claim when it comes to this story. They said, and I quote, no doubt at all that we were treated this way because we are not from this country and less aware of how the systems in the UK work. So that's what they said at the time. And this report from the housing ombudsman this week finds that the family's complaints about that mould were downplayed. So the issues were blamed on what staff presumed to be ritual bathing. Um, There's a quote there, the issue appeared to be the style of cooking and the style of bathing, one staff member um, said, according to the Ombudsman. So there's there's one important finding here, which is that the family were not properly dealt with, in part at least because assumptions were made about their lifestyle. Um, Mm. and that could have contributed to the lack of urgency with which their issue was dealt with. Blimey, goodness me. And and this isn't just about one family either, is it? No, it's not. And that's the really interesting thing about this ombudsman thing. And this is the bit that makes me really think, God, if you had the ombudsman looking at other social housing providers with the same lens, you know, how often would you find these kind of issues? But on RBH, Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, the ombudsman refers to some pretty broad cultural issues. That was the interesting thing about this report. It wasn't saying, okay, we've identified a handful of mistakes to do with Ishak's family and to do with others. They were talking about like issues in the culture of the organization. So for example, they say a culture of othering of the residents lies at the heart of the issues in Rochdale Borough Wide Housing. You know, I'm not, I'm not, maybe not everyone's familiar with the concept of othering, but this idea of, like, of treating 
people who are not like you um, as other and therefore not maybe um, granting them their, their full humanity, um, not, not, not dealing with them in the appropriate way as a result of that. So that's one really interesting um, aspect of this report. They, the, the, the ombudsman says, this is a pattern of exclusion and marginalization based on identities that are different to the norm. Um, they say it was exacerbated by an extremely poor data culture, like there wasn't the right collection of data and communication and that kind of thing. There's another really important quote, I think, here, which you've quoted partly from. The ombudsman says, our investigation found reoccurring instances of residents being treated in dismissive, inappropriate or unsympathetic ways. In some instances, the language used was derogatory. So there's, um, for example, there is a, a former worker um, at RBH was told by a manager that refugees were lucky they have a roof over overhead right so that's one quote um, the report talks about a, a disturbing picture of residents being judged entirely by staff members held prejudices lazy assumptions and an attitude towards asylum seekers and refugees that is wholly unacceptable I did kind of wonder like is this from the leadership because we know that um, Gareth Swarthbrick who, who was leading RBH had to you know he had to leave the organization I can't remember if he was fired or if he stepped down in the end but he left the organization pretty soon after the inquest um after the coroner's report um but yeah does it come from the leadership they've got a new leader in now who's apparently was you know impressed the ombudsman does it come from a widespread prejudice among staff is it the odd you know staff member I mean we know some staff aren't there anymore but are there perhaps more staff who are going to lose their jobs that's kind of what I um, after reading um, sections of this report, that's kind of what I thought, like, wh how widespread is this? My other question was, more broadly, how many of these social housing providers would have similar issues? They uh. How many of them would be, like, sticking to the letter of the law? So there was a thing where there, there was a legal case being brought, and therefore, technically speaking, according to their policies, you know, they, they needed to wait until after that in order to act. But... I wonder how many are kind of not using their common sense in that kind of way, not dealing with issues of mold, um, not showing any urgency. Like we all know that organizations show a lot of urgency about dealing with problems when they're in the public eye. You know, it's just like when, when the Sky News is coming along, when Michael Gove's on the TV talking about you, obviously everything's suddenly very urgent and very sympathetic. But the problem is millions of people live in social housing in this country and most of them have landlords that are not in the public eye. Um, it normally, if they're not renting directly from the council, they're renting from a housing association or a group like this who who don't have kind of any scrutiny. And we, you know, we both know there's a, a lack of scrutiny in, in in most parts of the country because of the national media rolling back and local media rolling back. And it feels like we might only hear about issues like this in organisations like this when there's a huge tragedy. And not just a tragedy, but one that happens to ca capture the public imagination, you know, because of our mm. age and et cetera, and the very forceful comments from the coroner. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be amazed if some of the things they referred to about RBH weren't also happening in lots of other social housing settings. I think that's the big challenge for the government and for the next government to root out these kind of um, issues in, in other social housing providers. Mm, indeed, yeah. Important questions worth keeping an eye on. Elsewhere this week, Yoshi, The Guardian has apologised for um, what it describes as an awful history because it's published its report into a uh, research into uh, its founders and its founders' links to slavery. 
Yeah, exactly. I think this is really interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to reading their magazine on Saturday because they're doing a big magazine. I think it's called Cotton Capital, um, all about The Guardian's original links to slavery um, and also industries that relied on slavery like cotton. I've known for a while, actually, I've been aware for a while that The Guardian was working on something like this because I spoke to someone there about it. But this has been a big review they've been doing, I think, since the George Floyd um, protests around the world and the increased awareness about um, racial inequities and, and racism and, and, and historic links to slavery in this country and that kind of thing. It was the Guardian, as most people probably know, was founded as the Manchester Guardian. For most of its life, it was the Manchester Guardian. Um, it was founded by a cotton merchant and journalist called John Edward Taylor. And that was around 200 years ago. I think they, uh, they, they, they celebrated their 200th anniversary last year or maybe the year before. So mm-hmm. we're, we're talking 200 years ago. Their office, their main office for for a long time, was actually right opposite where we are. We're in the Royal Exchange, right, which is where a lot of the trading happened. And they were in this enormous um, grand building over on, just over the road on Cross Street. Um, so if you're walking to the Arndale and you go down Cross Street and you, you, there's a Boots on your right, and if you if you look on that wall there, there's a little plaque about where the Guardian was founded, which which they put up a few years ago. So we're we're not really just talking about a Guardian story when we talk about these links to slavery. We're talking about a Manchester story. Um, this big report that they've they've had done, which has involved academics and journalists, it's called the Scott Trust Legacies of Enslavement Report. It's, it's actually well worth a read. I was reading some of the sections of the original report as well as some of the journalism that they've done about it. So Taylor, the founder, John Edward Taylor, he had links to slavery via the cotton trade. So he had one of his companies was, um, that he was involved with was the cotton company Shuttleworth Taylor & Co. And according to The Guardian now, it imported vast amounts of raw cotton produced by enslaved people in the, in the Americas. So that's one thing, right? That's probably not that unexpected. Everyone knew that The Guardian was founded by a cotton merchant. Everyone knows that cotton was intimately related to, in, you know, integrally related. I'm not even quite picking out the right word, but it was, it was incredibly closely related to slavery it was reliant on enslaved people Mm -hmm. um, in large part there's also 11 men who basically funded the guardian they loaned taylor money to found the guardian the manchester guardian and they also had economic links to transatlantic slavery through their commercial interests so we're talking about interest in cotton and interest in textiles. And these men are described by The Guardian in this report as influential members members of Manchester society involved in key networks of the economy and key social, political, and cultural roles. And that's why, again, I think it comes back to Manchester, right? Like these, these were not untypical wealthy people. Um, they, yeah. were, they were linked to so many other people, so many other places, so many other buildings. The building that I'm sitting in now, the Royal Exchange, some of them will have worked here or traded here or um had clerks working here so and i look out i mean i'm 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 sitting in my office fifth floor of the royal exchange i've got an amazing view out over the city and i can see other buildings that were built at that time right and we can all think of like bits of manchester that were built at that time and that would have been funded by this industry so i think what the guardian's doing mm. is actually kind of like quite an amazing bit of history about a city as well, or like from my perspective, it's really useful in that, in, in, in that way. Um, so, so, so that's, the, that's, that's the kind of, I think that might be the next step, you know, the, the, this, this kind of thinking about um, the broader implications. I think it's worth saying though, that one of these funders, these people who lent the, the, the money 
um, to Taylor. He was a man called Sir George Phillips, and he directly enslaved people as a co-owner of a sugar plantation in a place called Hanover in Jamaica. The report says that as a partner in the firm Boddington, Sharp and Phillips, he enslaved more than 100 people on a sugar plantation named Success in Hanover um, in, in, in Hanover and Jamaica. And I think it's worth saying that you know, the Guardian's clearly taking this thing really seriously, I mean, as you would expect. Catherine Viner, who's the, the paper's editor-in-chief, um, she has written, we are facing up to and apologizing for the fact that our founder and those who funded him drew their wealth from a practice that was a crime against humanity. Yeah, bloody. So that's a, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty, uh, uh, well, that's a pretty clear take, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a pretty clear conclusion that you can draw that, 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 that there were not only uh, yeah. secondhand links to slavery, but also direct links to slavery. And, you know, I think for, for what it's worth, I think this is great, isn't it? I think it's important that we understand where mm. we've come from and mm. uh, on on what our institutions are founded and built. Mm. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a culture war path that we could take a, a around that. Let's not. Mm. But I wonder what this means. What, what does it mean in, in, in real terms? Is that something that we just yeah. sort of need to understand and, and move on and, and, and live with? Or does it, does it change something? Well, I do think like understanding it is a massive part of it. And that's why I'm in, interested in the kind of Manchester angle as well, because there are lots of buildings here and institutions. And just like a lot of the architecture of the city was, you know, built at a time when a lot of the funding um, came from this particular trade in cotton. There were also people who here who directly owned slaves, as, as this report shows. So I think there is a big awareness part of this, just like having more of a conversation around like um, how important slavery and enslaved people were in like the, the the growth of this city that we're living in i think that's massive i think we should talk about it again i think the 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 guardian though is taking it a lot further than that i mean that you know they are talking about spending more than 10 million pounds in various forms of what they call restorative justice so they they're supporting projects um around the world um to do with um, reparations experts and community groups. They're expanding their coverage of black communities in the UK, um, also around the world. Um, they, they say they've got plans to create 12 new Guardian journalism roles and launch new editorial formats to better serve black audiences. So they're kind of really going a lot further than just like, hey, we've got this history. They're, they're you know, they're, they're kind of really putting quite a lot of money behind it. I mean, when I saw that, like, new journalistic roles, it's like, wow, that's quite a commitment. I mean, new, newsrooms are have been cussing, including The Guardian, have been cussing for a while now. Mm. And um, they're adding roles in response to this. So I think it goes beyond awareness. But I think to come back to the Manchester thing, I think it would be interesting to see whether this prompts, and maybe like we on the podcast and we in the, in the mail, you know, we've got a bit of a voice. We, maybe we can also shape that. Because I know not everyone wants to talk about these issues. Some people think it's like you're going back 200 years and whatever. But I think it's so important, like in the identity of a city, to understand where things came from, you know, not because I think people should go around feeling guilty about it all the time. I don't think that's the intention. I think the intention is to have a broader, fuller, deeper understanding of the place you live. How did it come about? You know, what kind of exploitation was underlying it then? It also it helps you to think about exploitation now in like fast fashion and industries that are still, you know, 
got big companies in, in Manchester in those areas. It helps you to give you some context for that and like maybe give a bit more urgency about thinking about, you know, where our smartphones are made and where our clothes are made and that kind of thing. So I think it's um I think it's a super interesting thing that they've done. I'm looking forward to this uh, magazine on the weekend. I yeah, I really recommend people go out and read that. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm glad you mentioned that thing about fast fashion because it's still it's still present and it's still present in Manchester, by the way. You know, links to um modern slavery, etc. Um, are everywhere and you know I, I've, we've, I've done a lot lately i guess around the the i, I guess in, in in response in part to the small boats issue being quite big in the news but what modern slavery looks like mm. um in in car washes and nail bars and mm. that and you know that'll be still very very present across greater manchester so mm. not just our history but our present not just our past but our presence as well so really worth digging into i think um a big old dot 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 for us to pick up on there at some point um mm. Let's move on, though, to Andy Burnham, uh, Yoshi, who's had, uh, shall we say, a bit of a mixed week. Uh, 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 good good and bad news <laughs> for Andy Burnham this week. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a fair characterization. So, so let, let's start with the good news. Um, Andy Burnham has got a book deal. He's working on a book called Look North, A Rallying Cry for a More Equal Britain. It's going to come out next year. Um, and that's by him and Steve Rotherham, who's the Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City region. Um, they're going to reflect on their time in politics. These, they're, they're best mates, I think. They're always at, like, appearing at events together. They're both very into football, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they look on their time in politics, offer a new vision for Britain with realistic steps to create a fairer future for all. So that's, that's one thing. He's got a book deal. Um, and as we joked in the Monday briefing, we hope that his advance is big enough to pay off his speeding fine. Um, he got a £2,000, well, I think it's almost £2,000 fine, including court costs and that sort of thing. Um, after driving 78 miles an hour or catch, you know, being caught 78 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. Um, Burnham says he was not aware of any variable speed limit in place on the smart motorway at the time. So it was one of those ones that's variable and you can sometimes kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, I've definitely, someone has been on the motorway, I'm like, oh, I'm going the normal motorway speed and actually I'm, you know, there's, there's this temporary this or a variable that. So I think it was one of them. It's not like he was driving through a village, which is 30 miles an hour at all times, and he was going 78. So maybe a little bit of mitigation there, but I have to say, quite funny. This week, I created a new Twitter ad. You know, we do these ads to get more readers in. Yeah. And it was um, the tech. It was, there was a picture of Greater Manchester, and there was Andy Burnham was in it. It was one of these collages that we do. And um, the text was, Greater Manchester is changing fast. Stay informed with the mill. And all of the replies are about, Burnham speeding. <laughs> Literally just people sending like gifts of of people on motorways like pulling like handbrake turns and like um everyone being like, is that about Andy speeding then? So I didn't think through the um the ad text and now we're just getting rinsed. I'm gonna have to turn it off. <laughs> Very good. Um those variable, I mean not to pass comment on on this, but too too firmly, but those variable speed limits are a nightmare, aren't they? I find them very difficult to navigate. Um, well, two thousand pounds sounds like a lot of money as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that no, is that normal for a fine? I don't know. Actually, that seems like an awful lot. I mean, I had a I had a speeding thing in like I can't remember Buckinghamshire or something when I was coming up from my mum's. It was it was one of those average ones. You know, it's like you're five over the average over ten miles. I hate the average ones. And yeah. then um, I think I just paid for a thing. Um, so yeah, he, he, I think my thing was like 150. So I, yeah, he must have. 
point. You must have got a bit unlucky there. There's a big difference. I don't know what Jeremy Clarkson about it, but they are a nightmare, aren't they? They're an absolute nightmare. Um, okay, a couple of other bits, uh, bits and bolts to get our teeth into before we uh, uh, before we wrap up. And uh, this this story about a high school that's been downgraded from good to inadequate, uh, according to inspectors. Uh, where, where is this, and what's happened? Yeah, so this is a. I, I've just come across this story. It's on the local democracy reporting service, so it's one that I want to look into more. But let's just say it's Denton Community College. Um, in Tameside, um, it was subject to um, a SNAP offset inspection. It was rated good in November 2021, um, but the visit in December found it was failing in every area, according to the local democracy reporting service. It's now been placed in special measures. Um, the report said some pupils do not understand the importance of showing tolerance and respect of others. These pupils routinely use discriminatory language, which goes unchecked by staff. This makes some pupils, particularly those from minority groups, feel unsafe. Um, so that's pretty, pretty striking. Mm, yeah, for sure. Okay. And uh, one to keep an eye on as well, I think. Um, see how that develops. Uh, and a lovely story about an 85-year-old from Stockport. Who is this person, this woman, and what, what has she become? She has become the face of an Adidas advertising campaign. Did you expect that answer? Well, I didn't you did. expect you, Well, you, you knew the story. But anyway, well, I've got campaign. it written down in front of me here, so that did that made a difference. But that slightly ruined it, yeah. I wouldn't have Barbara, done. Barbara Thackeray, uh, she runs 10K twice a week, which is a lot. Uh, she started running to raise money for St. Anne's Hospice in, in, uh, St. Anne's Hospice in Heald Green. Um, and she featured alongside Mo Salah in the, in, in the Adidas campaign um, that, that's running. And she has said, quote from her, so long as they were prepared to make a significant donation to St. Saint, Saint Anne's Hospice, I felt okay about it. I love that. <laughs> she's starring in a campaign and she's saying, I, f- I felt okay about it. Um, so how good is that? I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it. Good for her. Um, okay, um, before we go, take us into the newsroom, my friend. What are you working on in the Mill newsroom this week? Yeah, so we got a story about um, carbon limits and carbon budgets and how far off schedule Greater Manchester is. If you're listening to this on Thursday, Look in your inbox because it should be dropping any second, especially if you're a mail member, you can read the whole thing. Um, so we're, we're, we've got that cooking. That's been a, a week of work by Jack Delhanty. Quite a frustrating week from what I can hear uh, from the text messages I've been getting. Sounds like it's quite a frustrating week. So uh, we were also doing one about the Coliseum, Oldham Coliseum. Um, last ever play or show is um, Friday night. So Molly's writing about that. That's going to be a really good piece. Mm. Um, we were mentioned in The Guardian this week, which was quite nice. Second mention in a month. Um, they, they wrote about local news and, and they quoted us as a kind of like a bit of a, you know, example of things that are actually going well. It was a, it, there was literally a section of the article that was like, and it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> and then they quoted, quoted me for like three or four paragraphs. So that was, that was really good. Um, and a little call out for listeners. We're, we're, we're reporting on the, on the May elections, local elections. You and I will be out on the campaign trail. And we want to profile a few areas where there are some interesting storylines, contests, things are close, maybe a defining ward or whatever. So please get in touch with us, Jack at ManchesterMill.co.uk, if, if you think there's like a local council storyline that you really think we should cover. Fantastic. Interesting. Okay. Um, and some nods for things to do in and around Greater Manchester over the next couple of days. Yoshi, what is on your radar, please? Well, Molly's just given me this one, so credit to her. But head to the Underbank um, in Stockport um, to eat at the Stockport's monthly Foodie Friday event. So that must be, if you're listening on Thursday, it must be tomorrow, which features the biggest lineup of street food traders yet. Um, they'll be serving everything from tacos to 
um, Korean food, um, all under a sort of canopy of fairy lights. It looked um, looked really good. I actually recently went to the Underbanks for, I think, like the, the first proper time. I've, I've only been there in passing in the past, and um, it does seem like there's loads of loads of stuff going on there. So um, yeah, that's a little recommendation for um, for Friday. Very cool. I haven't even heard of that, so uh, I'll have to check it out. Um, uh, Oldham Beer Festival this weekend as well, uh, if that's your bag. Uh, £3 admission. It's at the Queen Elizabeth Hall at the Civic Centre. It was quite good. It's one of the, I think it's one of the better ones, uh, Oldham Beer Festival, so worth checking out if you're into it. And Stuart Lee, uh, who's not not always everybody's cup of tea, is he? But if he is yours, uh, he's on at the Salford, he's on at Lowry this week at Salford Keys, uh, and it's his last couple of shows over the weekend, for which I think there are still tickets. Uh, so... If you're into it, check it out. That's it from us for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to The Mill to get quality journalism into your inbox all week long. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to do that. And subscribe to this podcast as well to have us back in your podcast feed next Thursday with some insight from Andy Spinoza. We're going to hear from him at the Mill Members Club event that's happening this week. Uh, But for now, oh, yes. And before you say for now, and if you want to come to our future events, we've got two more Mill Members Clubs coming up in the next few months. Um, announcing them soon. If you want to come along to those, then please do join us as a member. Go to manchestermill.co.uk and join us as a paying member because then you will be invited to the next events. We're really going to build this up as like a regular thing. You hear from our journalists about stories we're working on. You hear from a local author or a local politician or something like that. So we're doing it with uh, Manchester University Press at the moment. And um, if you'd like to come along to those events and sort of become a part of the community and start you know, meeting us and hearing a little bit more about behind the scenes at the journalism and, and that kind of thing, um, please do join as a member now. It's £7 a month. Um, I think you'll really enjoy the extra newsletters you get, but also the ability to, to join this community and come along and comment on stories and all the rest of it. I endorse that message. For now, Yoshi, thank you. Thank you very much. See you next week. <laughs>